All right, we are in Psalm chapter 10, or uh, 21, excuse me, Psalm 21. So the goal is 10 psalms a summer until we get through all 150. Uh, one of the reasons that I decided to do that is I tried to preach alternatively through New Testament book, then Old Testament book, then New, Old, New, and Old. And this is one way to continue to be in God's Word uh, of the Old Testament. And psalms, uh, in particular, are the most quoted Old Testament book in the New. Uh, you might, we'll see next week in Psalm 22, this is where Jesus' cry on the cross comes from. He knows the Word of God very well, himself being the Word, and his cry as the Father um, forsakes him in bearing our sin is from the Psalms. And so we see the Psalms used over and over again. But more than anything, it has been, the book of Psalms, the songbook for God's people. This includes us, the church. Jesus at the first Lord's Supper sang a psalm. God's people have, from the very beginning, sang the psalms. And it's only in more recent days and in churches like ours that we've just neglected this. And so one of the reasons I want to preach through this book is to urge us, give us songs to sing. What's better than to sing God's own word to him? You notice when Dennis was praying, he prayed God's word. It's good to praise and pray and sing God's word back to him. And then the Psalms of all of the books in the Bible help you to express what's going on in your life in the full range of human emotion and response. Particularly our sorrows and complaints and weeping. And so that's, I hope it's helpful to you. Let me start like this, though, in Psalm 21. Uh, who controls your family calendar? Well... Typically the wife, you know, if you're with a guy and you say, can we do this and this? He's like, well, let me, let me check with my event ma manager or something like that, right? And typically the woman will control the calendar because all of the kids' events and family events are in one place and mom. And so whoever controls the calendar kind of controls the family. It's the same in culture. The American culture has a calendar that celebrates who we are. Every 4th of July. It's on the calendar, a day set aside to mark the beginning of our nation and our freedom from the tyranny of the English Parliament. Thanksgiving Day, a day to remember when the Europeans first came over and had the first celebration. And then Gay Pride Month. So... What's on the calendar forms the culture. Whoever controls the calendar helps set the culture. Now, why did I bring that up? Well, Psalm 21 had for much of Christian history been the psalm that was sung on Ascension Sunday, on Ascension Day. So Ascension Day 
typically was the last of the season of Pentecost. So on the Christian calendar, there are four seasons. You have the Advent Christmas season beginning four Sundays prior to Christmas going until two Sundays after Christmas. And then after that, you have the season of Epiphany that marks the beginning of Jesus' ministry with a Sunday celebrating his baptism all the way up till Lent. And then you have the Lent season Easter that goes for nearly 13 weeks, goes all the way to the end of May. Seven Sundays after Easter Sunday celebrating his resurrection. And then beginning in usually the first Sunday in June, we celebrate Pentecost. And that season goes for 20 weeks again all the way up till Advent. And on Ascension Sunday, that transition from the Easter Lenten season to the Pentecost Sunday is Ascension Sunday. And for the history of the church, on the church's calendar, Psalm 21 was always marked to be sung, to celebrate Christ's ascension to his kingly throne as the power with all authority over all things. And so... Some of you may have grown up in a church tradition where the Christian calendar was prominent. You you know very well this calendar that I just explained. Some of us, though, weren't in churches like that, but we still had some Christian calendar understanding. We still had Christmas and Easter and Good Friday. And maybe if you're in a church, you did Advent. But beyond that, you didn't really have it. And this was something embedded in our American culture, the The Christian calendar was the American calendar. And so just to illustrate how far we've fallen, now as a major holiday that our culture celebrates is the pride of a sexual identity. So the pilgrims get a day, the founding of our nation gets a day, but the LGBTQ plus cabal gets a month. And coming up in June is a gay pride celebration out at Nicolet College with uh, family-friendly drag show. That's rated PG-13, so if you're under 13, you need to be there with your parent. So maybe we underestimate the power of controlling the calendar. But Jesus is king, right? Jesus is king. So I'm not here advocating for us to return to following the Christian calendar closely, but to realize what's going on in our culture and our need for psalms like Psalm 21 that sing of the resurrection and power and reign of our king, lest we get too discouraged in our culture and just kind of hole up as monks and quit influencing our culture by Christ. So Psalm 21 is a psalm meant to be sung, celebrating, singing loud the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ our Lord. you imagine being the church in Roman times where you're not even lawfully allowed to meet and on Ascension Sunday you meet and sing this song publicly? That's what it's for. It's to give God's people some fight some pluck, some faith, some hope, some courage, some zeal. That's what it's for. 
Let me read it. I'm going to read Psalm 20 and 21. They're a pair. We'll hear more about that in a moment. They, they go together. So let's read Psalm 20 and 21. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. Selah. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation. And in the name of our God, set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses. But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. Psalm 21, to the choir master, a psalm of David. O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices, and in your salvation how greatly he exalts. You have given him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips. Selah. Just a note on that word there. It's probably a musical annotation. We don't really know what it means, but it likely means some kind of pause in the music and the song to cause you to focus on what was just said. You meet him with rich blessings. You set a crown of fine gold upon his head. He asked life of you. You gave it to him. Length of days forever and ever. His glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you bestow on him. For you make him most blessed forever. You make him glad with the joy of your presence. For the king trusts in the Lord. And through the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved. Your right hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them as a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath and fire will consume them. You will destroy their descendants from the earth and their offspring from among the children of man. Though they devise... Though they plan evil against you, though they devise mischief, they will not succeed, for you will put them to flight. You will aim at their faces with, their, with your bows. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. Let's pray. Father, often our soul clings to the dust. Give us life, please, now according to your word. Teach us your statutes. Make us understand your precepts. Help us to meditate on your wondrous works. Our souls melt away for sorrow. Strengthen us, please, according to your word. Put false ways far from us. Help us to choose the way of faithfulness. Help us to cling to your testimonies. Let us not be put to, your, to shame. Amen. It's so just a bit about Psalm 21. David wrote it, King David, the second greatest king of Israel. We don't know when David wrote it or for what event. Sometimes in the annotation he'll tell us. But it's helpful that we don't know the exact event so that it it can be applied to many events in our own lives. Let me say this right away. Don't forget who David was. He was the youngest son of a farmer. He had more in common with Rhinelander than New York. And he was a sinner. He murdered a man and took his wife. Later in his kingly reign, he got so 
high and mighty in his pride, thinking he was something that he ordered a counting of all of his warrior men to show how great he was. He was vain, proud, and yet he was counted as righteous by God. <laughs> he's, he's good for us to remember that Men and women from small places who are very sinful are accepted by God by faith in Christ and able to write songs that endure for thousands of years to the praise of his king. So this psalm sings a victory that God has given the king and assures him of future victories. The point of this psalm is Christ ultimately. It, it is initially King David, but really quickly you can see that this goes far beyond who David could have been. This king reigns forever. This king ultimately and finally defeats all of his enemies. Think revelation. Think gathering, as Dennis wrote, all of the millions before his throne worshiping King Jesus who has won the victory. So that's the psalm. Now, Psalm 21 and Psalm 20 are tied together. If you were paying attention, I read Psalm 20. It was a prayer for deliverance, that God would save the king. There was something about to happen. Maybe a foreign army was coming, and the people are singing to God for deliverance of the king and the people. And Psalm 21 is the response of rejoicing because Psalm 20's prayer was answered. The king was victorious. That's what Psalm 21 is for. And isn't that the Christian life? Isn't that your life? Something's coming. Something's arrived. That's great trouble. Anxiety. Fear. Sorrow. You cry out to God in the name of Jesus, our King, and God delivers. And then we repeat. Even more so, look at what follows Psalm 21 and Psalm 22. So Psalm 20, some trouble's coming, some massive trouble. Psalm 21, they're delivered, they rejoice, they're so full of glory that the psalm ends with the defeat of all of God's enemy. And then what follows that? Look at Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So the pattern, Psalm 20, trouble's coming, God help. Psalm 21, he's helped me, praise you God, rejoicing in your power. And then, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's our life. This is why the Psalms are so important. It gives the full range of our life, experience as Christians. But notice that this help on how to express your life is given to be sung with God's people. I think sometimes we take the Psalms or most of God's word and our immediate application is individual. Me and the Psalm and God. I, you, we apply this psalm very individualistically. But that's not what they are, are they? 
gift given to the choir master to be sung together with God's people. And so what is your help, Christian? It's Christ. And how are we to be helped in Christ? By gathering together with God's people as a source of incomparable joy and strength to sing together and be reminded, especially when we're in trouble, that Christ is our help. And that kind of help is together. Of course we seek God individually. Of course we should read the Bible on our own. Of course we should gather with our family and worship. But this is our place of greatest help and hope. And it's especially in the singing of psalms and hymns and other songs that we find our greatest strength and our greatest help, especially when we're in trouble. So I hope that the psalms help you with that. Don't neglect the reality that if you're in trouble and trial and sorrow and pain in a place where you don't see much hope, that the gathering of God's people and the singing of psalms like Psalm 21 or somebody just like us has had God answer his prayer and deliver him, ultimately focusing on Christ's deliverance from the grave, that we have great hope and help. You have great hope and help for your trouble at work, for your surgery, for your trouble with your child, for wondering how you're going to pay the bills when gas is five, six, seven, eight, nine dollars a gallon. And we need this. All right, a bit on Psalm 21 itself. It's two parts. The, psalm, the song is in two parts. It's a song and response song. Verses 1 to 7 is the king exalting, rejoicing in God's deliverance. He exalts greatly in verse 1. In verse 4, it's because he asked life and God gave it to him. It's a response to answered prayer. Focuses mainly on God's strength and power seen in his faithful, unending, sovereign love in verse 7. So again, this is Christ, resurrection from the dead, rejoicing in the power and kindness of his Father and raising him from the dead. The king sings the victory. But the pronouns change in verse 8 and following. Your hand, you will make them, you will destroy, you will put them to flight. The people, hearing the king's song in the first seven verses, respond with their own shouts of the king's eternal victory that's coming. So the king starts the psalm singing, and the people respond. Again, isn't that our lives? Christ resurrected from the dead, ascended to the right hand of the Father, the object of all praise and glory, and we gather to respond to this great saving power of our King. So again, the Psalms teach us how to be Christians. Teach us how to exalt in the King's victory. Because we are Christians. What, are, what is a Christian? It's Christ's men. Christ's women, Christ's people, Christ's children. We're named by Christ. 
We glory in his glory. We revel in his victory. It's not about us. It's about him. We respond to his victory. We don't have our own little kingdoms. We don't demand everybody else pay attention to us. We're the moons that reflect his light. We want to be those who live for his glory, and so we respond with loud singing to his victory, thanking him that he went through death. He suffered, and he won, and so we glory in him. That's what it means to be a Christian. So, teens, it ain't about you. Love doesn't mean agreeing with you. Dear wives, your husband is listening probably, but agreement doesn't mean listening. It ain't about you. Husbands, when your wife is helping you get better, it's not necessarily disrespect. It ain't about you. Who is it about? It's about Jesus and his glory. And Psalm 21 is reorienting us to that. That what we want to be is lives lived responding to our king with praise and rejoicing. Psalm 21 is teaching us that again. So let's talk about that. How are we to rejoice in our king? How are you to rejoice in your king? I got one word for you. Loud! (laughs) Whenever you see singing in the Bible, you'll almost always see a note about volume. Loud. Loud. Just look at it. How greatly he exalts in verse 1. You don't have any question of the volume of Psalm 21. It's loud. He exalts greatly. In verse 6, he's made glad with the joy of God's presence. In verse 13, he sings and praises God's power. You get the sense of the end of 1 Corinthians 15. And that little song there, you know which one I'm talking about. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your thing? sting, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's not meant to be sung quietly. Death has been defeated. The king has been raised. The king has ascended. He sits at the right hand with all power and glory and majesty and might. Everything bows to his will. All of history is moving to the time when he will dwell with his people and all of his enemies will be no more. And you sing quietly? What's wrong with us? So let me bloody your nose a little bit. Why won't you sing loud? Why won't you embarrass yourself on Sunday morning? Why are you so concerned that others around you think that you still have some dignity left? You know you don't have any dignity as a human, right? You're creating God's image. That's dignity. But I mean, like, why do you have to be so prim and proper? Us European, Germanic, white, Midwesterners. When Pastor Joseph was here a few weeks ago after his first sermon to the men, he came up to you. He's like, I don't think people are connecting. Like, 
everybody's just looking at me. Nobody's saying anything. I don't see any facial expressions. And he kind of thought we were mad at him. I said, no, that's just normal. So why won't you sing loud? Why won't we? Why won't men, why won't you raise your hands? Why won't you give a fist pump every once in a while? Young teens, I know you're at the age where you're very concerned of your appearance, and that's not a bad thing. But why won't some of you lead and show the example for the other teens on how a 17-year-old praises the king who died in your place for your sin and guaranteed you eternal resurrection from the dead, freed you from the stupidity of this world, made you a son or daughter of his. And you're quiet and concerned that you have proper appearance between, before those around you? Why won't we sing? Why won't we sing? Well, the... The volume in Psalm 21 is connected to the power of God. That's the main thing. The bookend in this psalm in verse 1, O Lord, in your strength, the king rejoices. And then strength and salvation are paralleled in your salvation. How greatly exalted. And then verse 13, be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. So the volume is connected to the extent of God's power. And the greatness of his power is to be mirrored by the volume of his people. And since Christ's power is unlimited, we try to reach the upper decibels of our volume. The king has been set on the holy hill of God, Psalm 2.6, and Luke 1.33, he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. And we match that power with our voices. Jesus' power is unrivaled. We read in Colossians 1 that, He was the one through whom all things have been made and in whom all things hold together. How does the Wisconsin River keep flowing? Christ's power. How does the sun keep rising? Christ's power. How does your heart keep beating? Christ's power. In John chapter 2, he performed a miracle of turning water into wine. Mark 1, he cast out an unclean spirit, power over all unseen realm and spirits. Mark 1, he healed a leper, power over body, disease and health. In Luke 7, he raised a widow's son to, from the dead, power over life and death. In Matthew 8, he stilled a furious storm, power over creation and nature and weather. In Matthew 9, he healed a paralytic, but before that, he forgave his sins. He has power over sin and forgiveness. In Romans 1, he's declared to be the Son of God in power by the resurrection of the dead. He has all power. And we're quiet. Now, there are times for quietness in singing. We'll see that next week in Psalm 22. 
Sometimes you weep. Sometimes you can't get a word out. But when we're declaring his sovereign power, we declare it. Nehemiah 10, the joy of the Lord is your strength. You glory and revel in his power. That's your joy. And it comes out your mouth and out of the expression of your face and your fists and everything. He's the king. And so we sing. He's the king, and so we exalt. He's the king, and so we overcome our reluctance to consider what people are thinking, and we praise him with hands up raised and voices at full throat, such that afterwards our voice is a bit hoarse. Because he's the king of great power. He will not fail us, the gates of heaven will not prevail. We're small, we're weak, we're sinful. He's our Savior. And so we sing. So husband, you don't know how to love your wife, want to listen better, you want to be more helpful. Your attempts are not fruitless by the power of Christ. Mom, your concerns for your children, all the care you give, your prayers and discipline and instruction, the meals and the laundry. It's not insignificant by the power of Christ. Those of you who care for others in our church and you feel like you're not making any progress with the people you're helping. Elders and other spiritual fathers and mothers. You have this patient work that often seems slow and fruitless, but it's Christ's power that works through you. As you endure, some of you have people that you love dearly who reject Christ and are his enemy. Maybe you live with them, work with them. You've been praying for their salvation. You've been trying to honor Christ before them. You've taken some opportunities to invite them or to give them something to read or told them about Christ, and yet they continue to refuse. It's in it Christ's power, though. And isn't you learning about his power and enduring in this work connected to how you sing about his power? This psalm is meant for you to leave here convinced that God's power will help you in all of those areas that you don't think can be helped anymore because you're just relying on you. It's not you, is it? It's Christ. We're Christians. In Pilgrim's Progress, there is this moment where Christian is walking with hopeful. And they come to a place where they can go this way or stay on the narrow way, and this way looks better and looks like a shortcut getting to the celestial city. And so they go that way, and they end up um, grabbed by giant despair and in his dungeon. And he beats them and doesn't give them food or water. And his wife is constantly telling the giant, to force them to kill themselves. And they won't, and they won't, and they won't. And Christian despairs. Christian on two occasions tells Hopeful that it's probably better if we kill ourselves. It's not worth living in this. There's no way out of this. This is our life for the rest of time. We might as well get it over. And Hopeful reminds Christian 
of all that God's power has already brought him through to that point in his pilgrim's progress, in his progress as a pilgrim. It reminds him of all of God's faithfulness, how he overcame Apollyon, how he made it through the uh, uh, vanity fair, how he stood firm, how God was there and power. That's what these psalms are for. That's what gathering with God's people are for. To remind us again of God's power, of God's faithfulness, not only in our journey, but in all of the saints' journey in the entire scriptures, that their God is our God. That the God who raised his son from the dead, ascended him to the place of all power, is our God. That the same spirit that raised Christ in power is the same spirit that dwells inside of us. So that when we're in the castle of giant despair, we remember we have a psalm to sing. We have a psalm to sing. Do you have a psalm to sing? Well, let me close with another cultural reference that's much less important. Lion King. You remember that song early in Lion King when Simba is singing about how great it will be to to be king. Remember that? He's very naive. He thinks being king means everybody will do whatever he wants. He's like your kids. Because he thinks being king means that everybody will serve him. And won't it be great to be king? Well, our king, his greatness was shown not in him coming and selfishly enslaving us to his whims, but in his laying down his life for us. And isn't it great to know that king? Isn't it great to know that king? That his greatest strength was when he was hanging on the cross. In a moment of incredible weakness. And that dying and being put in a tomb, his greatest power was showing when he burst the bonds of death. And it's not great for you to be king. It's only great to know this king. It's not great for you to demand that other people do what you want or refuse to do what they want, to think you're yourself a little prince or princess but it's great to know this king to know his salvation to know that in his presence there is joy forever this is our joy but don't neglect the contrast to that joy in verses 8 to 12 that if you don't know this king you're his enemy and that he will find you out and that he will consume you in his wrath. And so you're either somebody who rejoices in this king and loves this king and wants to live for this king or an enemy of this king. And God's people are taught to rejoice in both. Do you know that? We rejoice in the king's victory over the king's enemies. Now we hope in this age that those enemies become friends through faith and don't suffer the eternal destruction away from his power as we read in 2 Thessalonians 1, right? 
Right. Let's pray. Father, please teach us to love your son. To glory in his glory. To boast in his cross and resurrection. To repent of trying to bend others to our wishes and will and trying to be our own little kings or queens, but instead rejoice in this king. To know this king, that he is king, is our good, not that we be. And so, Father, please help us. Please have mercy on us. Turn us from our own selfishness, our own self-sufficiencies, and may we rejoice in Jesus, our king. And to apply the truth that he is our king. And there's nothing in this universe because he has all power that can separate us from his love. His is the victory. His is the glory. His is the power. His is the majesty. And so, God, help us to enjoy and to revel in that and to give our full allegiance to him. We ask for this faith. We ask for your spirit to do this. Even now as we sing, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.